Crosspoint Church's weekly sermon audio from lead pastor Brad Evangelista. For more information about Crosspoint, visit InsideCrosspoint.com. Good morning. Let's open our Bibles to Hebrews chapter one, chapter chapter two, verses one through four. Hebrews two, verses one through four. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And we come now to the second chapter of Hebrews. We've been working our way through for the past few weeks, and we will be in it, Lord willing, through most of the rest of this year. This anonymous glorious New Testament letter written to Jewish Christians in Rome in the first century. These four verses that we're going to handle today are are really setting up the major message, I think, of Hebrews, not to drift. Uh, When I was a young kid, my parents were both school teachers, and we would vacation at the beach We went to San Clemente, California, which is a little beach town in between San Diego and Los Angeles, near where I grew up, and we would rent a ratty little hotel where the roaches were plenty, and we would go to the beach all day, every day, for about a week or so. And one of my most vivid memories as a child was one day on the beach watching my father out in the water, which... Uh, I say, uh, as a parenthesis, I never went into because years before that, he took me as a young child to go see the movie Jaws. And I grew up in the late 70s and the early 80s, so my two childhood fears were sharks and the Soviet Union. (laughs) I'm still kind of scared of those two things, actually. But I saw my father waving to us as I was on the beach, and he just kind of slowly but surely kept being pulled out. Kept waving to us and just kept being pulled out until I realized he really wasn't waving hello. He was waving somebody come help me, and the lifeguard sprung into action. They raced out there, and they dragged my dad back to shore because he had been caught in something that you couldn't see from the visible eye. He had been caught in a riptide. It was slowly but surely pulling him out to sea. I think the book of Hebrews is really about spiritual riptide, spiritual drift. And it's a warning of the writer, really the preacher, because this is one long sermon. It's the the sermon that this writer is writing to these early Christians who are tempted to go back to Judaism. They're tempted to go back to the Old Covenant. Christians in Rome in the first century were starting to be persecuted. And Judaism was an accepted and socially accepted religion in first century Rome. Whereas Christianity was viewed as a cult and was starting to be increasingly ostracized and persecuted. And these early Christians, because of this this increasing social pressure that would eventually result in outright persecution and martyrdom, They were starting to consider going back to what was safe and comfortable. And the writer of Hebrews is writing to them saying, don't go back, don't drift. So with that, let's read the first four verses of Hebrews chapter 2. 
Here's going to be the flow. I'm going to read the text. I'm going to try and explain the text. And then we're going to try and apply some truths from this text. So Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. This is the word of the Lord. Well, let me pray and ask the Lord to help us understand. And then let's roll up our sleeves and dig into this text. Father, we come to you in the name of your son, Jesus. We ask for you, as Paul prayed in Ephesians 1, that you would give to us the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of your son. We ask that the eyes of our hearts would be enlightened, that we would know and experience and taste and see what is the hope to which you've called us, and what are the riches of your glorious inheritance in the saints. Lord, make Jesus sweeter, clearer to us. May believers be built up and may unbelievers be confronted with the gospel. May we all walk out of this room changed because of your word and your spirit working through your word. Help me to explain this passage faithfully to these people that I love. In Jesus' name, amen. I think the summary of this passage is actually pretty clear. I think what the writer is saying is actually quite evident. The point of the passage is, don't drift. Pay attention to Jesus. The the first word is, therefore, it's coming on the heels of everything that he said in chapter 1. And he's saying Jesus is superior. He's better than angels. And that's really going to be the comparison that he makes all the way through Hebrews. He's going to compare Jesus to angels and to Moses and to the priesthood and to the sacrificial system. All these old covenant things, all these old covenant middlemen, so to speak, between the people of God and God. And he's going to say that Jesus is better than all of them, so don't drift back. And if what God said to the old covenant people And their disobedience that came from their ignorance or their rejection of what he said resulted in punishment or retribution. If Jesus is so much greater, then how much greater will the punishment be, which is implied here? How much greater will it be if we reject his son, Jesus? I think that's the point of these four verses in Hebrews. This is the first of four or five warning passages in Hebrews. We're going to pick this up again, Hebrews Chapter 3, we're going to see another warning passage. And then in chapter 6, and then in chapter 10, and then in chapter 12. And in fact, you could make a case, I think a good one, and I think I'm going to try and make it as we journey through Hebrews, is that the heart of the sermon of Hebrews, the heart of this message, is a spiritual warning, an exhortation to the people of God not to drift. So let's look at this text, just kind of verse by verse, word by word, sometimes slow, sometimes quicker than others, and then let's settle on a few truths that we can apply from this text to our lives. First verse, therefore, you guys know it, conjunction, junction, what's your function, 
Right, that's a conjunction, a saying. that Anytime the Bible uses therefore, think about what comes before it. So he's making the point that what I'm about to say to you is based on what I have just said to you. And the point that he's made in chapter 1 is that Jesus is greater. Jesus is superior to the angels. He is the Son of God. He's the Creator, so he's worthy of praise because of who he is. He upholds, he sustains the universe by the word of his power, but he's not just worthy of our attention because of who he is as the eternal son of God in his divinity, but because of what he has actually done in his humanity, he has brought about purification, verse 3 of Hebrews 1 that we'll look at in just a minute. So Jesus is worthy of all praise. He is the supreme thing in the universe that deserves our attention, and that's the point of, of the, verse 1 here. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. Now, I want you to notice a word in verse 1, and I think it's used, yes, it's used three times in verse 1, and it's the word we, because this is a kind of uh, debate, a sort of inter-squad or intermural debate about the letter of Hebrews that has gone on for centuries amongst students of the Bible. Who is the message of Hebrews directed at? Is the writer, or really the preacher of Hebrews, is he talking primarily to Christians or is he talking to unbelievers? Because there are warnings in Hebrews that carry with them the threat or the consequence that if the warning is not heeded, then what will follow is eternal judgment forever, which means if he's talking to Christians, then the writer of Hebrews is implying that a true believer could lose their salvation. What God has purchased for them through his son could somehow be lost by an individual believer. Now, I don't have time to unpack that right now totally, but we will later on as we get into the letter, letter. But let me just state that we come, I come from a theological position that believes that those whom God has redeemed, whose sins he has forgiven, whom he has reconciled to himself, can never lose what was really never theirs in the first place, which was God's salvation that he gave to them and made them alive and promises to bring them all the way home. And so... Hebrews kind of present, but there are many Christians who love the Lord, who don't believe that, who think that a Christian can somehow lose or walk away from their salvation on that final day. I think they're wrong. We're going to talk about that later. But the, the quandary, the debate amongst readers and students and scholars of Hebrews is, who's, who is the audience of Hebrews? Is the writer talking to Christians, or is this a warning to non-Christians to try and make them Christians. Well, I think it's a little bit of both, but primarily, I think that this is written to Christians. Because even though I believe, and we're going to bear this out, Lord willing, through the rest of the letter, and I think we spend a good amount of time on this when we preach here through the New Testament, that the Bible teaches that those whom God has reconciled to himself, he is already glorified. We are safe and nothing can snatch you from my hand, Jesus says in John chapter 10, that they cannot lose their salvation. So what's the purpose of warning people that if they walk away from God, they will ultimately lose their salvation. What's the point of warning them of that if they can't actually lose it? You see the dilemma here? If this is written to Christians, 
And Christians who are safe, reconciled to God, can never finally fall away from God, then why does the writer of Hebrews seem to warn them that if they do, they will fall away when the rest of the Bible, especially the New Testament, seems to imply that a Christian can never fully, finally fall away? So is is this warning valid for unbelievers? And I want to say that although I do not think a Christian can, a true born-again Christian can lose their salvation, that this warning must be heeded by true born-again Christians who cannot lose their salvation. Why? Because the warning is part of the means that God uses to bring about his determined end for a Christian. Let me give you a, a kind of picture of that, an illustration that I've used many times. Imagine a father that builds a house on a very busy road, a highway, and his children are out playing in the front yard, and he says to the children as they're kicking a ball around, don't kick the ball out into the highway. If you run out into the highway, you will surely die. And if they did kick the ball out into the highway and run out in front of a speeding car, they would surely die. But the father is a good father, and he knows that if they do get close to the edge in their ignorance or their disobedience or in their folly or in their immaturity, not only is he going to yell at them, he's going to come off the porch, run across the yard, grab them by the scruff of the neck, and bring them back to safety. But part of the way that he brings about what he guarantees will happen, which is their safety, is by the means of calling them to be careful. And I think that's what's going on in in Hebrews. And I think we see this in the rest of the Bible. Let me read to you just a couple examples. Jude chapter 20, not chapter 20, there's only one chapter of Jude, so it's actually verse 20. Jude, verse 20 through 25, listen to the, listen to the juxtaposition of this tension between this warning, this call to actually do it, to heed, but also undergirding the sovereignty, the protection, the preservation of God. Listen to Jude, verse 20 through 25, but you, beloved, Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. So who, where, where to keep ourselves? Waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. And have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the gar- garment stained by the flesh. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy to the only God our Savior through Jesus Christ our Lord be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time now and forever. Amen. Do you see that? Do you see that tension? Verse 20, build yourselves up, keep yourselves. Verse 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. So the way he keeps us is by warning ourselves, at least part of the way he keeps us, is by warning us to take serious the call to keep ourselves. Peter uses this same tension. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. Listen to this. Listen, this is a beautiful verse. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So who's doing all the work there? It's God. He caused you to be born again. 
To, to what? Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Notice the way Peter describes our salvation. It's an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. It never spoils. Uh, the joke is, around my house and around the office, I drink milk every day. I make a little smoothie with milk. And by the way, just so you guys know the date on the milk carton, it's not the, use, it's not the buy-by date, it's the use-by. And there's actually a week after that, if you, if you then open it up and you smell it, it's not too bad, you shake it up and it's still good. But I just want you to notice that, that the things in this earth, they, they go sour like milk. But how does Peter describe our salvation? It is undefiled, unfading, unspoiled, kept in heaven for you. That verse alone should convince us of eternal security of those who are truly reconciled to God. But listen to verse 5. Who by God's power are being guarded through faith. That's our faith. So, we're part of this. This is God gives us faith that isn't necessarily perfect. At times it's weak, but God uses the instrument of the faith, which is a gift of God, which he puts in our heart, which at times is feeble and weak, but he uses that faith to grab hold of, even at times weakly in our life, to the object of our faith, which is Jesus, which he has promised will never let us go. But both are necessary for this keeping. One is the means. The other is the power of God. He uses the means of our weak faith that he stirs up and he strengthens through the call to build ourselves up. And here in Hebrews chapter 2, that he warns us, don't drift. And who is he talking to? He's talking to us. He's talking to we, he's talking to Christians. We who have heard, pay much closer attention to what you have heard. And what is it that you've heard? It's the good news of the gospel. It's how sinners can be reconciled to God. So we're going to get into this at the end as a way of application. But what's the antidote to spiritual drift? It's not the beginning of the Christian life when you confess some truth and then you go on to the deep things of the Christian life. It's remembering, paying attention to, heeding, not forgetting the good news of the gospel of how a holy God sent his son Jesus, God the Son in the flesh, to become a man, die on the cross, bear the wrath of God, extinguish it, absorb it, raise again in victory over sin, death, and the grave, and commands all people to repent and gives those whom he has saved a new heart, those whom he's called to himself a new heart, so that they can believe in him. We remember that, and he's calling us to be reminded of that and to zero in on that and to pay closer attention to the glorious gospel that we've heard. That's what Hebrews is saying here in verse 1. Lest we drift away from it. Lest we drift. This word drift has just got this connotation of being carried away by water. Implicit in this is this idea that, that the world, as it exists in its fallen state, is not a spiritual neutral place. This is, we don't live in like a spiritual 
Switzerland that isn't going to declare their allegiance. The world has declared its allegiance. It's a fallen place. Ephesians chapter 2 is very clear. We're following the course in our the unregenerate state, people that are not trusting in Christ, unbelievers. And by the way, I, I say this often, but I think it just needs to be repeated over and over again because we just we get foggy on this so easily because our world deceives us. There are only two types of people in the world. Really. Praise God for our distinctions. Praise God for our ethnic distinctions. Praise God for our cultural distinctions. Praise God for those things. Those are wonderful things to rejoice in. We shouldn't be oblivious to them. We should rejoice in them. The Bible paints a picture of the end of all things when people from every tribe and tongue and nation will be rejoicing together in Christ forever. Those are wonderful things. But ultimately, there are only really two types of people in the world, those who are in Christ and reconciled to him and those who are outside of Christ that are trusting in themselves, that are unbelievers, that are still dead in their sins. And there is no in-between. And the testimony of Scripture is that the world is dead in its sin in its natural state and is full of unbelievers and God has called believers out of it and sent them back into it. But this world has a kind of course. It's, it's dominated by Satan, by the prince of the power of the air. And this world is a current that is attempting to drag the people of God away from him. And the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't remember that picture of the riptide. Don't be don't be pulled out to sea. Don't, don't let yourself drift. Now, the, the currents, the riptide currents that the Hebrews were facing was maybe family rejection or public shame or loss of property or martyrdom maybe at the hands of the Roman Empire. But what are, what are our currents that we face today? We, we are so prone to lose our focus on Christ the problems may be different. The social social situation may be a little bit different for us 2,000 years later, but the underlying spiritual problem is the same, is that we are prone to drift. And the message of Hebrews, which was so applicable to first century Jewish Christians, is applicable to us today. Don't drift. Pay attention. And he continues on in verse 2. He says, well, he's going to make a comparison. He says, for since the message declared by angels, meaning the Old Testament, because remember, the Old Testament was delivered by angels to Moses. He says, for since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. In other words, when Israel disobeyed God, they were put out of the promised land. That's the, that's the point, he's saying then how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? So here's the point of verse 2 in the beginning of verse 3, is he's making a lesser to greater argument. He's saying if, if, if this lesser offense, rejecting Moses, rejecting the Old Testament law, rejecting what God did in the Old Covenant, received punishment, how much more, how much greater, verse 3, the beginning of verse 3, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. That's the point he's saying here. D don't, don't let yourself drift 
because if, and here's where this tension is, he's warning Christians that if you drift, you will stand before God on judgment day and you will be, you will be sent away from him forever. So it's the father in the house on the busy highway. If you go out into the street, you will surely die. That's what the writer of Hebrews is saying to these first century Christians. Pay attention, because if you don't, this is what is going to happen. And notice that word escape. Think about how drastic and how serious the Bible presents the Christian life. How should we escape? We don't like to think about this because we live in the most comfortable society in the world, and many times to our total spiritual detriment in American church culture, we have reduced the message of Christianity down into principles for better living. But here, it's like the writer of Hebrews is putting ammonia underneath our nostrils, clearing our spiritual vision so that we would see that what is truly important is eternity. And that day, text, he's using this reminder to actually be the means for our spiritual good and sanctification and clarity so that we don't drift. He says in Hebrews 9, verse 24, for Christ has entered. Back into what God has done through Christ for our salvation. Verse 24, Hebrews 9, for Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, meaning a tent on earth, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Now think about who's doing this. This is God the Son in verse chapter 1, who's created all things, who's sustaining all things. He's upholding everything by the word of His power. And yet, He is now appearing before God on the behalf of his people. Verse 25. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy place every year with blood not his own. That's referring to the Day of Atonement in the Old Testament when the priest would have to offer a sacrifice, a, a perfect spotless lamb on the Day of Atonement, Leviticus chapter 16, year after year. But Jesus doesn't do that. Verse 25. Not to offer himself repeatedly. Verse 26. For when, for then he would have to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Friends, that's the heart of the gospel. Jesus appears before God to offer himself That's what the cross is. It's Christ appearing before God to offer the sacrifice to atone, to satisfy the holiness of God, the justice of God, the wrath of God, the punishment of God that should have been ours. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. In verse 27, And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment, so Christ having been offered once to bear the sins of many, meaning believers, Christians, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, because he's already done that, but to save those or to bring those all the way home, those who are eagerly waiting for him. 
So do you see the do you see the eternal trajectory? Do you see the realities of what the writer of Hebrews is trying to get us to see? He's saying, how should you escape? Look, there are only two types of people in this world. Those that on that day will, will say, what's your plea before a holy God? Jesus, who's gone before me, who has, who's offered himself. He's offered himself as the means by which would satisfy your holiness. And those who will say, well, Lord, you know, I, I was a pretty good guy. You know, maybe I should... I should be here. Let me into your heaven, God, because I was relatively decent or I wasn't as bad as that poor schmuck that I live next door to. Friends, our only plea on that day will be Christ. And notice the, the logic of the writer of Hebrews. He's saying, don't forget that and that's the way you don't drift and become indifferent to the glorious things of God. Don't neglect such a great salvation. Verses 3 and 4. It says it was declared at first by the Lord, speaking of this salvation, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. Okay, I want you to see something in these last last verse and a half before we wrap it up with three three things to consider. Uh, I think what's going on here in the second half of verse 3 and 4 is a secondary but very important doctrinal point about how God speaks and communicates with his people. So let me read it again. He says, it, meaning the message of salvation, the gospel, how Jesus has made us right, that he's wanting us to remember to keep us from drifting. It was declared at first by the Lord. In other words, it's Jesus's earthly ministry. And it was attested or it was authenticated or or given to us by those who heard meaning the apostles, and that's how we have the New Testament. I've spoke about this for the last couple weeks, two weeks ago when we began Hebrews, is that the reason that we know what should be in the New Testament is because it came through the hands or the ministry either written by or written by one of the ministry associates of one of the 12 apostles, including Paul and his half-brother James. That became the test by which the early church decided through the inspiration and superintendence and guidance of the Holy Spirit, what should be in the New Testament. And so that's what the writer of Hebrews is ultimately referring to here. He's saying that this message of the gospel was given to us first by the Lord Jesus in his earthly ministry. It's attested to us by those who heard the New Testament while God also bore witness, here's the third witness, by signs and wonders and various Miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will. So what the writer is saying is that all of the miracles that we see in the New Testament were God's way of validating, authenticating the ministry of the apostles saying that these are Jesus's men. So pay attention to them because they have Jesus's authority. I think that's what's happening in the New Testament, when we see signs, wonders, miracles, and gifts. And so he's saying that the purpose of these things is to attest, to, to prove to us that we can trust this word because it's coming from this men who have the authority of Jesus. And I think that's an important point we need to make, is that the primary purpose of gifts, especially the miraculous gifts, especially things like speaking in tongues and prophecy that we see in the New Testament is meant not primarily as a pattern that we should seek after today, 
but as a attestment, as, a, as an authentication of the ministry of the apostles to say that these are Jesus' men given special one-time authority to communicate the gospel, to write the word, the New Testament, that we now can trust. So the focus for the New Covenant Christian now is not signs and wonders and miracles and words of prophecy and, and tongues and interpretation, but it is the word of God which is sufficient. And in between, while these apostles were writing this New Testament, God gave signs and wonders and words to validate and prove and authenticate their ministry so the New Testament church would pay attention to them and realize that they had the authority of Jesus and accept their word and then compile what we know of under the inspiration of the Spirit, the Bible today. So here's my point. Lest you think that somehow this limits God, God can and does move miraculously still. Yes and amen. I believe in miracles. I think we should pray for healing and for God to do supernatural things and to move in ways that go beyond natural means. In fact, today we're going to pray for somebody in the church that is struggling with some serious health issues and we're going to pray that God would heal them whether by means of a doctor's treatment or just by His sovereign overriding supernatural will. We believe that God still does those things. But we don't believe that God continues to give certain people kind of gifts for those things because those special miraculous gifts of healing and signs and wonders I think were given to the early apostles for the sake of giving their ministry validity as one-time redemptive history spokesmen for Jesus so that they would have the authority to have their word which eventually became the New Testament validated. And it seems that certain other gifts like speaking in tongues, prophecy, knowledge, words of wisdom, were intermediary gifts in this time of the Bible being written for a particular purpose, again, to instruct the church and validate the ministry of the apostles that is no longer necessary because we a kind of lack of sufficiency of the Word of God, which is enough for us. And so if we're always looking for an extra word or something else that God would say in addition to what He has already said, I think it unwittingly undermines the authority of God's Word and creates a culture in a church that can become very, very explicit of sin. What the Word has said, because it, this message of the Gospel, this is what you need to focus on. This is what you need. So three truths to quickly conclude. What should we take away from this? Well, first, I think we should take away from this that spiritual drift is slow, subtle, You know, we just never, nobody ever wakes up in the morning and says, you know, I think today I'm going to decide to spiritually drift. And before I know it, in six months, two years, five years, I want to find myself way out to sea, away from the safety of the shore. Nobody wakes up and says that. It happens slowly, imperceptibly. It's just little things that that come in our lives. 
Maybe an inappropriate conversation, maybe a winking at this, maybe an overlooking of that, maybe it's an offense. And I think this is one of the, the real ploys of the enemy in our day is that our culture now, the, the greatest social collateral in our culture is victimization. And if somehow you can find yourself as the victim of the man or this or that or somebody else, then you can nurse that offense and you can hide behind that thing. And then the world all of a sudden shrinks from God's purposes and God's people to you and how somebody has wronged you. And I want to be clear there is real sin and there are real people in this room who have been wronged heinously by other people. But the truest thing about us is not primarily that we are victims, but that we have victimized God, that Christ takes our sin. He is the only innocent one who takes the sin of us. We must first see ourselves in light of the gospel as people that need God's mercy. And the moment that we start seeing ourselves as, as always offended as the victim, it makes us prone to spiritual drift. It causes in us a kind of sense of entitlement. And it causes us to look away from our own selves and to look at other people and their faults. And slowly but surely, we self-justify ourselves away. And before we know it, we look up and we are a thousand miles further from God than we were when this drift started. Spiritual drift is slow. It's subtle. It's hard to notice about yourself. Secondly, resisting this spiritual drift is a part of the spiritual warfare that every Christian faces. We all face it. It's part of being left here on this earth. Paul says in Ephesians 6 that we're to put on the armor of God so that we can stand against the schemes of the devil. It's like the devil's a, he's drawing up plays to penetrate the defenses of the gospel in your heart. He's been doing this a lot longer than you've been living for the Lord. And he, and he has schemes meant for our destruction. Peter says in 1 Peter 5, 8 through 10, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls about like a lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in the faith, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who's called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. It's like Peter saying, hey, look, this is going to happen. It's going to happen. The devil's coming for you and he's going to find weak spots in your perimeter and he's going to probe the perimeter of your heart and he's, and he's going to try and take you down. And he's going to want to cause you to drift and he's not going to jump out from behind a rock and say, hello, I'm your adversary, the devil. Today, I'm going to plan on destroying your life. Because if he did that, we would know, wait a minute, this is unusual. Maybe I should walk the other way. He's going to, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, he will come and appear to us as an angel of light at times. So resisting the devil, the, the, the propensity to spiritual drift is part of the fight of every Christian. We are all prone to this. And why does God allow this? Why, why would God even allow a system of salvation 
a system of redemption, a, a way, a plan of redemption where he would save people and then allow them to stay in this muck and actually wade through the mud until they make it all the way home because God has deemed in his goodness and glory that after he saves us, he leaves us in this mud so that the way that we walk towards him is actually used by God to bring other people to himself. And so we, we put on display. That's why the Christian life is to be put on display in community because as another Christian sees you, albeit imperfectly, but striving to resist the drift and taking the Christian life seriously, it puts steel in the spine of another Christian. That's why we gather weekly and, and listen to preachers preach from the Word of God because it's part of God's ordinary means that He uses to actually warn us and remind us and clear the mud from the windshields so that we can resist the drift and see him and follow him. Friends, it's not rocket science. It's just the ordinary means of giving yourself to God, his word, his people, reminding yourself of who he is and plodding along in the mud until we make it all the way home. And it's the fight of every Christian to resist this drift which then brings me to the final point, resisting, we resist drift. I think this is the point of these four verses. We resist drifting by paying attention to the message of our great salvation, to reminding ourselves of the gospel, to remembering the gospel, to, to taking our, our amnesia pills. That's what we all have, gospel amnesia. And what are amnesia pills? It's it's daily giving yourself to God's Word. It's making yourself part of a church community. It's gathering regularly. It's understanding that you are weak and that the world's not there to serve you, but you're there to actually get your eyes off yourself and help other Christians follow Jesus as they help you follow Jesus. And that together we say, come on, come on, let's link arms and let's resist the drift and let's remember the gospel. Just note, this is a personal word. It's a word to a people in community, but it applies to us individually. And what's going on here, how we resist this drift, is not, it's not just, it's not just being convicted one time by a sermon or a message or a Bible passage that we read, but it's a posture towards the Lord of dependence and humility where we say, man, I need this, I need this. I, am, I, I recognize how weak I am in light of the world around me, and I need the Lord, and I need to remember the gospel. And that, I think, is the point of Hebrews. Let me fast forward to Hebrews chapter 10. This is one of my favorite passages in all of the New Testament. And I can't wait till we get here. And in fact, I reference this passage so much. One of my fears is that by the time we get to Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 through 25, we'll have said, I'll have said all that I have to say about this passage. Um, so maybe we'll just read it over and over and over again that Sunday. I don't know. Listen to what he says. Therefore, this is like one of the concluding points of Hebrews. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, therefore, because Jesus has done what he has done on the cross, you can go to God by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. In other words, the curtain, there was this veil in the temple that would separate 
the people from the Holy of Holies and the analogy, the illustration that the writer of Hebrews is using is this, this cloth veil that was torn when it was moved aside when the priests would go into the Holy Holies is a kind of picture of how Jesus' flesh was torn on the cross that was removed so that we could enter in. So that he opened up for us uh, through the curtain that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir one another up to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is a habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. So do you see the, 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 the imperatives in this passage? Look, this is what Jesus has done. He's opened up a way. He's done it. So come on. But when you come on in, don't just come on in and lounge on the couch. Hold on with all your might to Jesus. And then don't just hold on to all of your might to Jesus. Look around to other people and consider how you can help other brothers and sisters hold on with all of their might to Jesus and stir one another up to love and good deeds. And oh, by the way, while you're doing that, you're going to have to deal with each other and each other, you're going to drive each other crazy. So don't get so easily offended. Stick with it. Hold on to Jesus and help grumpy people and people that are hard to love because you know what? You're grumpy and hard to love too. Hold on. Lest, lest you drift away. So I end with this question. Friends, are you in danger of drifting? Are you in danger of drifting? I I am. And I think all of us on one level or another are too. Because we're part of the we that this text is talking to. Don't write yourself out of this. Don't say, oh man, that's helpful, Brad. I wish so-and-so were here. No, no, no. Not my father, not my mother, not my father. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Not the deacon, not the elder. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. Me, you, we're in danger of drifting. And this word's for us. Don't drift. Pay attention to Jesus. Remember the gospel. Hold on. Draw near. Look around and help others do the same. And cling fast to Jesus. Let me pray. Lord, help us with this. Help us to cling hard unto Jesus so that we might not drift. And for those of us that are drifting, remind us and remember, help us remember the good news of the gospel that nobody can snatch us from his hand. If there's unbelievers in this room, 
Lord, give them a new heart so that they might trust in Jesus, so they might see and believe in Jesus. Because we will all stand before him someday. And our only plea will be what Jesus has done, not what we have done. Lord, do these things as we worship you, as we respond to you in repentance and joy. In Jesus' name, amen.